Chapter Sixteen of the Memoirs of Jack Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joelle Peebles. The Memoirs of Jack Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison, by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Eight: Convent Affairs. Chapter Sixteen, Countess Coronini, A Lover's Peak, Reconciliation, The First Meeting, A Philosophical Parenthesis. My beautiful nun had not spoken to me, and I was glad of it, for I was so astonished, so completely under the spell of her beauty, that I might have given her a very poor opinion of my intelligence by the rambling answers which I should very likely have given to her questions. I knew her to be certain. That she had not to fear the humiliation of refusal from me, but I admired her courage in running the risk of it in her position. I could hardly understand her boldness, and I could not conceive how she contrived to enjoy so much liberty. A casino at Moran, the possibility of going to Venice to sup with a young man—it was all very surprising. And I decided in my own mind that she had an acknowledged lover whose pleasure it was to make her happy by satisfying her caprices. It is true that such a thought was rather unpleasant to my pride, but there was too much piquancy in the adventure. The heroine of it was too attractive for me to be stopped by any considerations. I saw very well that I was taking the high road to become unfaithful to my dear C. C., or rather that I was already so in thought and will. But I must confess that, in spite of all my love for that charming child, I felt no qualms of conscience. It seemed to me that an infidelity of that sort, if she ever heard of it, would not displease her, for that short excursion on strange ground would only keep me alive and in good condition for her, because it would save me from the weariness which surely was killing me. I had been presented to the celebrated Countess Coronini by a nun, a relative of Monsieur Dandolo, that Countess who had been very handsome and was very witty. Having made up her mind to renounce the political intrigues which had been the study of her whole life, had sought a retreat in the convent of Saint Justine, in the hope of finding in that refuge the calm which she wanted and which her disgust of society had rendered necessary to her. As she had enjoyed a very great reputation, she was still visited at the convent by all the foreign ambassadors and by the first noblemen of Venice. Inside of the walls of her convent, the countess was acquainted with everything that happened in the city. She always received me very kindly, and treating me as a young man, she took pleasure in giving me, every time I called on her, very agreeable lessons in morals. Being quite certain to find out from her, with a little manoeuvring, something concerning M. M., I decided on paying her a visit the day after I had seen the beautiful nun. The countess gave me her usual welcome, and after the thousand nothings which it is the custom to utter in society before anything worth saying is spoken. I led the conversation up to the convents of Venice. We spoke of the wit and influence of a nun called Celsi, who, although ugly, had an immense credit everywhere and in everything. We mentioned afterwards the young and lovely sister Micali, who had taken the veil to prove to her mother that she was superior to her in intelligence and wit. After speaking of several other nuns who had the reputation of being addicted to gallantry, I named M. M. Remarking that most likely she deserved that reputation likewise, but that she was an enigma, 
The countess answered with a smile that she was not an enigma for everybody, although she was necessarily so for most people. What is incomprehensible, she said, is the caprice that she took suddenly to become a nun, being handsome, rich, free, well-educated, full of wit, and to my knowledge a free thinker. She took the veil without any reason, physical or moral. It was a mere caprice. Do you believe her to be happy, madam? Yes, unless she has repented her decision, or if she does not repent it some day, but if ever she does, I think she will be wise enough never to say so to anyone. Satisfied by the mysterious air of the countess that M. M. had a lover, I made up my mind not to trouble myself about it. And having put on my mask, I went to Murren in the afternoon. When I reached the gate of the convent, I rang the bell, and with an anxious heart I asked for M. M. in the name of Madame de S. The small parlor being closed, the attendant pointed out to me the one in which I had to go. I went in, took off my mask, and sat down, waiting for my divinity. My heart was beating furiously. I was waiting with great impatience. Yet that expectation was not without charm, for I dreaded the beginning of the interview. An hour passed pretty rapidly, but I began then to find the time rather long, and thinking that perhaps the attendant had not rightly understood me, I rang the bell, and inquired whether notice of my visit had been given to Sister M. M. A voice answered affirmatively. I took my seat again, and a few minutes afterwards an old toothless nun came in and informed me that Sister M. M. was engaged for the whole day. Without giving me time to utter a single word, the woman left the parlor. This was one of those terrible moments to which the man who worships at the shrine of the god of love is exposed. They are indeed cruel moments. They bring fearful sorrow. They may cause death. Feeling myself disgraced, my first sensation was utter contempt for myself, an inward despair which was akin to rage. The second was disdainful indignation against the nun upon whom I passed the severe judgment which I thought she deserved, and which was the only way I had to soothe my grief. Such behavior proclaimed her to be the most impudent of women, and entirely wanting in good sense, for the two letters she had written to me were quite enough to ruin her character if I had wished to revenge myself, and she evidently could not expect anything else from me. She must have been mad to set at defiance my revengeful feelings, and I should certainly have thought that she was insane if I had not heard her converse with the countess. Time, they say, brings good counsel. It certainly brings calm, and cool reflection gives lucidity to the mind. At last I persuaded myself that what had occurred was, after all, in no way extraordinary, and that I would certainly have considered it at first a very common occurrence if I had not been dazzled by the wonderful beauty of the nun, and blinded by my own vanity. As a very natural result, I felt that I was at liberty to laugh at my mishap, and that nobody could possibly guess whether my mirth was genuine or only counterfeit. Sophism is so officious. But in spite of all my fine arguments, I still cherished the thought of revenge. No debasing element, however, was to form part of it, and being determined not to leave the person who had been guilty of such a bad practical joke the slightest cause of triumph, I had the courage not to show any vexation. She had sent word to me that she was engaged, nothing more natural. The part I had to play was to appear indifferent. Most likely she will not be engaged another time, I said to myself, but I defy her to catch me in the snare again. I mean to show her that I only laugh at her uncivil behavior. Of course I intended to send back her letters, but not without the accompaniment of a billet doux, the gallantry of which was not likely to please her.
The worst part of the affair for me was to be compelled to go to her church, because, supposing her not to be aware of my going there for C. C., she might imagine that the only object of my visits was to give her the opportunity of apologizing for her conduct and of appointing a new meeting. I wanted her to entertain no doubt of my utter contempt for her person, and I felt certain that she had proposed the other meetings in Venice and at the Casino of Murin only to deceive me more easily. I went to bed with a great thirst for revenge. I fell asleep thinking of it, and I awoke with the resolution of quenching it. I began to write, but, as I wished particularly that my letter should not show the pique of the disappointed lover, I left it on my table with the intention of reading it again the next day. It proved a useful precaution, for when I read it over twenty-four hours afterwards, I found it unworthy of me and tore it to pieces. It contained some sentences which savored too much of my weakness, my love, and my spite, and which far from humiliating her would only have given her occasion to laugh at me. On the Wednesday after I had written to C. C., that very serious reasons compelled me to give up my visits to the church of her convent, I wrote another letter to the nun, but on Thursday it had the same fate as the first, because upon a second perusal I found the same deficiencies. It seemed to me that I had lost the faculty of writing. Ten days afterwards I found out that I was too deeply in love to have the power of expressing myself in any other way than through the feelings of my heart. Sincerium est nisi vas, quod conc infidunus assisit. The face of M. M. had made too deep an impression on me. Nothing could possibly obliterate it except the all-powerful influence of time. In my ridiculous position I was sorely tempted to complain to Countess S., but I am happy to say I was prudent enough not to cross the threshold of her door. At last I bethought myself that the giddy nun was certainly laboring under constant dread, knowing that I had in my possession her two letters, with which I could ruin her reputation and cause the greatest injury to the convent, and I sent them back to her with the following note, after I had kept them ten days. I can assure you, madam, that it was owing only to forgetfulness that I did not return your two letters which you will find enclosed. I have never thought of belying my own nature by taking a cowardly revenge upon you, and I forgive you most willingly the two giddy acts of which you have been guilty, whether they were committed thoughtlessly or because you wanted to enjoy a joke at my expense. Nevertheless, you will allow me to advise you not to treat any other man in the same way, for you might meet with one endowed with less delicacy. I know your name, I know who you are, but you need not be anxious. It is exactly as if I did not know it. You may perhaps care but little for my discretion, but if it should be so, I should greatly pity you. You may be aware that I shall not show myself again at your church, but let me assure you that it is not a sacrifice on my part, and that I can attend Mass anywhere else. Yet I must tell you why I shall abstain from frequenting the church of your convent. It is very natural for me to suppose that to the two thoughtless acts of which you have been guilty, you have added another not less serious, namely that of having boasted of your exploits with the other nuns, and I do not want to be the butt of your jokes in cell or parlor. Do not think me too ridiculous if, in spite of being five or six years older than you, I have not thrown off all feelings of self-respect, or trodden under my feet all reserve and propriety. In one word, if I have kept some prejudices, there are a few which, in my opinion, ought never to be forgotten. Do not disdain, madam, the lesson which I take the liberty to teach you, as I receive in the kindest spirit the one which you have given me. 
most likely only for the sake of fun, but by which I promise you to profit as long as I live. I thought that, considering all circumstances, my letter was a very genial one. I made up my parcel, put on my mask, and looked out for a porter who could have no knowledge of me. I gave him half a sequin, and I promised him as much more when he could assure me that he had faithfully delivered my letter at the convent of Marin. I gave him all the necessary instructions, and cautioned him to go away the very moment he had delivered the letter at the gate of the convent, even if he were told to wait. I must say here that my messenger was a man from Forley, and that the Forlanese were then the most trustworthy men in Venice, for one of them to be guilty of a breach of trust was an unheard-of thing. Such men were formerly the Savoyards in Paris, but everything is getting worse in the world. I was beginning to forget the adventure, probably because I thought, rightly or wrongly, that I had put an insurmountable barrier between the nun and myself, when, ten days after I had sent my letter, as I was coming out of the opera, I met my messenger, lantern in hand. I called him, and without taking off my mask, I asked him whether he knew me. He looked at me, eyed me from head to foot, and finally answered that he did not. Did you faithfully carry the message to Murin? Ah, sir, God be praised. I am very happy to see you again, for I have an important communication to make to you. I took your letter, delivered it according to your instructions, and I went away as soon as it was in the hands of the attendant, although she requested me to wait. When I returned from Murin, I did not see you, but that did not matter. On the following day, one of my companions, who happened to be at the gate of the convent when I delivered your letter, came early in the morning to tell me to go to Murin, because the attendant wanted particularly to speak to me. I went there, and after waiting for a few minutes, I was shown into the parlor, where I was kept for more than an hour by a nun as beautiful as the light of day, who asked me a thousand questions for the purpose of ascertaining, if not who you are, at least where I should be likely to find you. You know that I could not give her any satisfactory information. She then left the parlor, ordering me to wait, and at the end of two hours she came back with a letter which she entrusted to my hands, telling me that, if I succeeded in finding you out and in bringing her an answer, she would give me two sequins. In the meantime, I was to call at the convent every day, show her the letter, and receive forty sons every time. Until now I have earned twenty crowns, but I am afraid the lady will get tired of it, and you can make me earn two sequins by answering a line. Where is the letter? In my room, under lock and key, for I am always afraid of losing it. Then how can I answer? If you will wait for me here, you shall have the letter in less than a quarter of an hour. I will not wait, because I do not care about the letter, but tell me how you could flatter the nun with the hope of finding me out. You are a rogue, for it is not likely that she would have trusted you with the letter if you had not promised her to find me. I am not a rogue, for I have done faithfully what you told me, but it is true that I gave her a description of your coat, your buckles, and your figure, and I can assure you that for the last ten days I have examined all the masks who are about your size, but in vain. Now I recognize your buckles, but I do not think you have the same coat. Alas, sir, it will not cost you much to write only one line. Be kind enough to wait for me in the coffee-house close by. I could not resist my curiosity any longer, and I made up my mind not to wait for him, but to accompany him as far as his house. I had only to write, I have received the letter, and my curiosity was gratified, and the Forlanese earned his two sequins. I could afterwards change my buckles and my mask, and thus set all inquiries at defiance. I therefore followed him to his door. He went in and brought me the letter. 
I took him to an inn where I asked for a room with a good fire, and I told my man to wait. I broke the seal of the parcel, a rather large one, and the first papers that I saw were the two letters which I had sent back to her in order to allay her anxiety as to the possible consequences of her giddiness. The sight of these letters caused me such a palpitation of the heart that I was compelled to sit down. It was a most evident sign of my defeat. Besides these two letters I found a third one signed S, and addressed to M. M. I read the following lines. The mask who accompanied me back to my house would not, I believe, have uttered a single word if I had not told him that the charms of your witty mind were even more bewitching than those of your person, and his answer was, I have seen the one, and I believe in the other. I added that I did not understand why you had not spoken to him, and he said with a smile, I refused to be presented to her, and she punished me for it by not appearing to know that I was present. These few words were all our dialogue. I intended to send you this note this morning, but found it impossible. Adieu. After reading this note, which stated the exact truth, and which could be considered as proof, my heart began to beat less quickly. Delighted at seeing myself on the point of being convicted of injustice, I took courage, and I read the following letter. Owing to an excusable weakness, feeling curious to know what you would say about me to the countess after you had seen me, I took an opportunity of asking her to let me know all you said to her on the following day at latest, for I foresaw that you would pay me a visit in the afternoon. Her letter, which I enclose, and which I beg you to read, did not reach me till half an hour after you had left the convent. This was the first fatality. Not having received that letter when you called, I had not the courage to see you. This absurd weakness on my part was the second fatality. But the weakness you will, I hope, forgive. I gave orders to the lay sister to tell you that I was ill for the whole day. A very legitimate excuse, whether true or false, for it was an officious untruth, the correction of which was to be found in the words, for the whole day. You had already left the convent, and I could not possibly send anyone to run after you, when the old fool informed me of her having told you that I was engaged. This was the third fatality. You cannot imagine what I had a mind to do and to say to that foolish sister, but here one must say or do nothing. One must be patient and dissemble, thanking God when mistakes are the result of ignorance and not of wickedness. A very common thing in convents. I foresaw at once, at least partly, what would happen, and what has actually happened, for no reasonable being could, I believe, have foreseen it all. I guessed that, thinking yourself the victim of a joke, you would be incensed, and I felt miserable, for I did not see any way of letting you know the truth before the following Sunday. My heart longed ardently for that day. Could I possibly imagine that you would take a resolution not to come again to our church? I tried to be patient until that Sunday but when I found myself disappointed in my hope, my misery became unbearable, and it will cause my death if you refuse to listen to my justification. Your letter has made me completely unhappy, and I shall not resist my despair if you persist in the cruel resolve expressed by your unfeeling letter. You have considered yourself trifled with, that is all you can say, but will this letter convince you of your error? and even believing yourself deceived in the most scandalous manner, you must admit that to write such an awful letter you must have supposed me an abominable wretch, a monster, such as a woman of noble birth and of refined education cannot possibly be. 
I enclose the two letters you sent back to me, with the idea of allaying my fears which you cruelly supposed very different to what they are in reality. I am a better physiognomist than you, and you must be quite certain that I have not acted thoughtlessly, for I never thought you capable. I will not say of crime, but even of an indelicate action. You must have read on my features the signs only of giddy impudence, and that is not my nature. You may be the cause of my death. You will certainly make me miserable for the remainder of my life, if you do not justify yourself. On my side, I think that justification is complete. I hope that, even if you feel no interest in my life, you will think that you are bound in honor to come and speak to me. Come yourself to recall all you have written. It is your duty, and I deserve it. If you do not realize the fatal effect produced upon me by your letter, I must indeed pity you, in spite of my misery, for it proves that you have not the slightest knowledge of the human heart. But I feel certain that you will come back, provided the man to whom I trust this letter contrives to find you. Adieu. I expect life or death from you. I did not require to read that letter twice. I was ashamed and in despair. M. M. was right. I called the Forlanese, inquired from him whether he had spoken to her in the morning, and whether she looked ill. He answered that he had found her looking more unhappy every day, and that her eyes were red from weeping. "'Go down again and wait,' I said to him. I began to write, and I had not concluded my long screed before the dawn of day. Here are, word by word, the contents of the letter which I wrote to the noblest of women, whom in my unreasonable spite I had judged so wrongly. I plead guilty, madam. I cannot possibly justify myself, and I am perfectly convinced of your innocence. I should be disconsolate if I did not hope to obtain pardon, and you will not refuse to forgive me if you are kind enough to recollect the cause of my guilt. I saw you, I was dazzled, and I could not realize a happiness which seemed to me a dream. I thought myself the prey of one of those delightful illusions which vanish when we wake up. The doubt under which I was laboring could not be cleared up for twenty-four hours, and how could I express my feverish impatience as I was longing for that happy moment? It came at last, and my heart, throbbing with desire and hope, was flying towards you while I was in the parlor counting the minutes. Yet an hour passed almost rapidly, and not unnaturally, considering my impatience and the deep impression I felt at the idea of seeing you. But then, precisely at the very moment when I believed myself certain that I was going to gaze upon the beloved features which had been in one interview indelibly engraved upon my heart, I saw the most disagreeable face appear, and a creature announced that you were engaged for the whole day, and without giving me time to utter one word she disappeared. You may imagine my astonishment, and the rest. The lightning would not have produced upon me a more rapid and more terrible effect. If you had sent me a line by that sister, a line from your hand, I would have gone away, if not pleased, at least submissive and resigned. But that was the fourth fatality which you have forgotten to add to your delightful and witty justification. Thinking myself scoffed at, myself love rebelled, and indignation for the moment silenced love. Shame overwhelmed me. I thought that everybody could read on my face all the horror in my heart, and I saw in you, under the outward appearance of an angel, nothing but a fearful daughter of the Prince of Darkness. My mind was thoroughly upset, and at the end of eleven days I lost the small portion of good sense that was left in me. At least I must suppose so, as it is then that I wrote to you the letter of which you have so good a right to complain, and which at the time seemed to me a masterpiece of moderation. 
but I hope it is all over now, and this very day at eleven o'clock you will see me at your feet, tender, submissive, and repentant. You will forgive me, divine woman, or I will myself avenge you for the insult I have hurled at you. The only thing which I dare to ask from you as a great favor is to burn my first letter and never to mention it again. I sent it only after I had written four which I destroyed one after the other. You may therefore imagine the state of my heart. I have given orders to my messenger to go to your convent at once so that my letter can be delivered to you as soon as you wake in the morning. He would never have discovered me if my good angel had not made me go up to him at the door of the opera house but I shall not require his services any more. Do not answer me, and receive all the devotion of a heart which adores you. When my letter was finished, I called my Forlanese, gave him one sequin, and I made him promise to go to Murin immediately, and to deliver my letter, only to the nun herself. As soon as he had gone, I threw myself on my bed, but anxiety and burning impatience would not allow me to sleep. I need not tell the reader who knows the state of excitement under which I was laboring that I was punctual in presenting myself at the convent. I was shown into the small parlor where I had seen her for the first time, and she almost immediately made her entrance. As soon as I saw her near the grating I fell on my knees, but she entreated me to rise at once as I might be seen. Her face was flushed with excitement, and her looks seemed to me heavenly. She sat down, and I took a seat opposite to her. We remained several minutes motionless, gazing at each other without speaking, but I broke the silence by asking her, in a voice full of love and anxiety, whether I could hope to obtain my pardon. She gave me her beautiful hand through the grating, and I covered it with tears and kisses. Our acquaintance, she said, has begun with a violent storm. Let us hope that we shall now enjoy it long in perfect and lasting calm. This is the first time that we speak to one another, but what has occurred must be enough to give us a thorough knowledge of each other. I trust that our intimacy will be as tender as sincere, and that we shall know how to have a mutual indulgence for our faults. Can such an angel as you have any? Ah, my friend, who is without them? When shall I have the happiness of convincing you of my devotion with complete freedom and in all the joy of my heart? We will take supper together at my casino whenever you please, provided you give me notice two days beforehand, or I will go and sup with you in Venice, if it will not disturb your arrangements. It would only increase my happiness. I think it right to tell you that I am in very easy circumstances, and that far from fearing expense I delight in it. All I possess belongs to the woman I love. That confidence, my dear friend, is very agreeable to me the more so that I have likewise to tell you that I am very rich, and that I could not refuse anything to my lover. But you must have a lover. Yes, it is through him that I am rich, and he is entirely my master. I never conceal anything from him. The day after tomorrow, when I am alone with you, I will tell you more. But I hope that your lover will not be there? Certainly not. Have you a mistress? I had one, but, alas, she has been taken from me by violent means, and for the last six months I have led a life of complete celibacy. Do you love her still? I cannot think of her without loving her. She has almost as great charms, as great beauty, as you have, but I foresee that you will make me forget her. If your happiness with her was complete, I pity you. She has been violently taken from you, and you shun society in order to feed your sorrow. I have guessed right, have I not? But if I happen to take possession of her place in your heart, no one, my sweet friend, shall turn me out of it. But what will your lover say? He will be delighted to see me happy with such a lover as you. It is in his nature. 
What an admirable nature! Such heroism is quite beyond me. What sort of a life do you lead in Venice? I live at the theatres, in society, in the casinos, where I fight against fortune, sometimes with good, sometimes with bad success. Do you visit the foreign ambassadors? No, because I am too much acquainted with the nobility, but I know them all. How can you know them if you do not see them? I have known them abroad. In Parma, the Duke de Montalegre, the Spanish ambassador. In Vienna, I knew Count Rosenberg. In Paris, about two years ago, the French ambassador. It is near twelve o'clock, my dear friend. It is time for us to part. Come at the same hour the day after tomorrow, and I will give you all the instructions which you will require to enable you to come and sup with me. Alone? Of course. May I venture to ask you for a pledge? The happiness which you promise me is so immense. What pledge do you want? To see you standing before that small window in the grating, with permission for me to occupy the same place as Madame de S. She rose at once, and with the most gracious smile, touched the spring. After a most expressive kiss, I took leave of her. She followed me with her eyes as far as the door, and her loving gaze would have rooted me to the spot if she had not left the room. I spent the two days of expectation in a whirl of impatient joy, which prevented me from eating and sleeping, for it seemed to me that no other love had ever given me such happiness, or rather that I was going to be happy for the first time. Irrespective of birth, beauty, and wit, which was the principal merit of my new conquest, prejudice was there to enhance a hundredfold my felicity, for she was a vestal, it was forbidden fruit, and who does not know that, from eve down to our days, it was that fruit which has always appeared the most delicious. I was on the point of encroaching upon the rights of an all-powerful husband. In my eyes, M. M. was above all the queens of the earth. If my reason had not been the slave of passion, I should have known that my nun could not be a different creature from all the pretty women whom I had loved for the thirteen years that I had been laboring in the fields of love. But where is the man in love who can harbor such a thought? If it presents itself too often to his mind, he expels it disdainfully. M. M. could not by any means be otherwise than superior to all other women in the wide world. Animal nature, which chemists call the animal kingdom, obtains through instinct the three various means necessary for the perpetuation of its species. There are three real wants which nature has implanted in all human creatures. They must feed themselves, and to prevent that task from being insipid and tedious, they have the agreeable sensation of appetite, which they feel pleasure in satisfying. They must propagate their respective species, an absolute necessity which proves the wisdom of the Creator, since without reproduction all would be annihilated, by the constant law of degradation, decay, and death. And whatever St. Augustine may say, human creatures would not perform the work of generation if they did not find pleasure in it, and if there was not in that great work an irresistible attraction for them. In the third place, all creatures have a determined and invincible propensity to destroy their enemies. And it is certainly a very wise ordination, for that feeling of self-preservation makes it a duty for them to do their best for the destruction of whatever can injure them. Each species obeys these laws in its own way. The three sensations, hunger, desire, and hatred, are in animals the satisfaction of habitual instinct, and cannot be called pleasures, for they can be so only in proportion to the intelligence of the individual. Man alone is gifted with the perfect organs which render real pleasure peculiar to him, 
because, being endowed with the sublime faculty of reason, he foresees enjoyment, looks for it, composes, improves, and increases it by thought and recollection. I entreat you, dear reader, not to get weary of following me in my ramblings, for now that I am but the shadow of the once brilliant Casanova, I love to chatter, and if you were to give me the slip, you would be neither polite nor obliging. Man comes down to the level of beasts whenever he gives himself up to the three natural propensities without calling reason and judgment to his assistance. But when the mind gives perfect equilibrium to those propensities, the sensations derived from them become true enjoyment, an unaccountable feeling which gives us what is called happiness, and which we experience without being able to describe it. The voluptuous man who reasons, disdains greediness, rejects with contempt, lust, and lewdness, and spurns the brutal revenge which is caused by a first movement of anger, but he is dainty and satisfies his appetite only in a manner of harmony with his nature and his tastes. He is amorous, but he enjoys himself with the object of his love only when he is certain that she will share his enjoyment, which can never be the case unless their love is mutual. If he is offended, he does not care for revenge until he has calmly considered the best means to enjoy it fully. If he is sometimes more cruel than necessary, he consoles himself with the idea that he has acted under the empire of reason, and his revenge is sometimes so noble that he finds it in forgiveness. Those three operations are the work of the soul which, to procure enjoyment for itself, becomes the agent of our passions. We sometimes suffer from hunger in order to enjoy better the food which will allay it. We delay the amorous enjoyment for the sake of making it more intense, and we put off the moment of our revenge in order to make it more certain. It is true, however, that one may die from indigestion, that we allow ourselves to be often deceived in love, and that the creature we want to annihilate often escapes our revenge, but perfection cannot be attained in anything, and those are risks which we run most willingly. End of chapter 16 Recording by Joelle Peebles